Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part three of Outlive by Dr. Peter Atia. In this episode, I'll be discussing centenarians, the role genes have in longevity, Peter's journey to Easter Island, and rapamycin. We yearn for there to be some sort of quote-unquote secret to live a longer, healthier, and happier life. That desire drives our obsession with knowing the special habits and rituals of those who live the longest. We are often fascinated by people like Madame Calmet, who seem to have escaped the gravitational pull of mortality. It's worth asking, what do healthy centenarians actually have in common? And more importantly, what can we learn from them, if anything? After 10 decades of age, the air gets pretty thin pretty quickly. Those who live to 110 have been a part of this special group called the supercentenarians, and there's only about 300 members in the world at any given time. Now, it's in a very exclusive club, and just to put that into perspective, for every super centenarian in the world, there are about nine billionaires, so a very exclusive club. Could there be, could their exceptional longevity and exceptional health span be primarily a function of their genes? So studies of Scandinavian twins have found that genes may be responsible for only about 20 to 30 percent of the overall variation in human lifespan. The catch is that the older you get, the more genes start to matter. For centenarians, they seem to matter a lot. Being the sister of a centenarian makes you eight times more likely to reach the age yourself, while brothers of centenarians are 17 times as likely to celebrate their 100th birthday, according to data from one, a 1,000-subject study out of the New England uh, Centenarian Study, which had been tracking extremely long-lived individuals since 1995. And this is the same thing that Nir Barzali was saying in his Age Later book, that genes matter, especially if you want to live a longer life. Genes are very important. So there's always this running joke in the longevity and aging field that if you don't happen to have a centenarian sibling, the best option is to choose your long-lived parents. Now, the crucial distinction, the essential distinction is that these people who are living to the centenarians and supercentenarians they tend to develop these diseases that we get, but they develop it much later in life. And we're talking about decades later in life. According to research by Thomas Pearls of Boston University and his colleagues who run the New England Centenarian Study, which I just, just mentioned, one in five people in their general population will have received some sort of cancer diagnosis by the age of 72. So one in five people by the age of 72 will have a cancer diagnosis. Among centenarians, that one in five threshold is not reached until age 100, nearly three decades later. So they're getting diagnosed with cancer later. And in mathematical terms, the centenarians' genes have bought them a phase, a phase shift in time. That is, their entire lifespan and healthspan curve have been shifted a decade or two to the right. Now, you remember last episode where I talked about the healthspan lifespan curve and we see that medicine 3.0 helps shift the curve to the right. Now these centenarians are even shifted farther to the right because both their health span and lifespan are, are exceptional. Not only do they live longer, but they are, there are people who have been healthier than their peers and biologically younger than them uh, for virtually their entire lives. Now, again, one main goal of medicine 3.0 is to help people live a life course more like the centenarians only better. The difference is that while most centenarians seem to seem to get their longevity and good health almost accidentally, thanks to you know these genes that I'm mentioning 
and or good luck. The rest of us must try to achieve this intentionally. So which this kind of brings us to our next question is, how do centenarians delay or avoid chronic disease? And how can we do the same? He talks about these different types of theories of aging and like, like this antag antagonistic pleiotropy theory. Now, this one possible theory holds that centenarians live so long because they are they possess these genes that protect them from the flaws in our typical genome by preventing or delaying cardiovascular disease and cancer and also help maintain cognitive function decades after others tend to lose it. Now, there are a handful of potential longevity genes, you know, these quote-unquote longevity genes that have emerged in various studies, and it turns out that some of them are possibly relevant to our strategy. The first one he mentions, of course, is APOE, probably Peter's probably Peter's favorite gene or one of his favorite genes. Now, APOE, it codes for a protein called the apolipoprotein E, and it's involved in cholesterol transport and processing. And there's different variants of APOE. There's APOE2, E3, E4, and we are all familiar with the APOE4 variant of the APOE gene because this is the one associated with an increased risk of Alzheimer's somewhere between a factor of 2 and 12 times. So if you have two copies of this APOE4, you are at a high risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. The APOE2 variant, on the, of the, on the other hand, of the APO, APOE seems to protect its carriers against dementia, and it also turns out to be very highly associated with longevity. According to a large 2019 meta-analysis of seven separate longevity studies with a total of nearly 30,000 participants, people who carried at least one copy of the APOE2 and not E4 were about 30% more likely to reach extreme old age, which they defined as 79 for men and 100 for women, compared to people with the standard E2, E3 combination. Meanwhile, those with two copies of the APOE4, again, the one associated with Alzheimer's, were 81% less likely to live that long, according to the analysis. So this is a pretty big swing. There are other genes he mentions here, like CETP and APOC3, which again, I recommend you listening to my Age Later podcast by Nir Barzilay, where he goes into these different longevity genes. Peter also mentions the FOXO3 gene, the which is short for forkhead box. And this seems to be directly relevant to human longevity. So I've definitely mentioned FOXO3 before. If you listen to Rhonda Patrick, she's really big on FOXO3. So FOXO3, just to quickly describe it to people who aren't familiar with it, it belongs to a family of transcription factors which regulate how other genes are expressed. And it's sort of this gene that plays a wide role in various health parameters. For example, it helps with cellular repair, it helps regulate metabolism, it cares for our stem cells, it helps with housekeeping. So for example, the anti-cancer effect of FOXO3 is it helps upregulate these different pathways like PUMA and BIM, which help in the apoptosis process. So instead of these cancerous cells or soon-to-be cancerous cells sticking around, it helps get rid of them. And we know it helps again with DNA repair. It actually helps with insulin sensitivity by increasing the insulin receptor in IRS, insulin receptor substrate. 
So it really plays a wide role in, in our health. And again, the good news is that we can actually upregulate the FOXO gene by certain interventions like calorie restriction, even activating uh, sirtuins, um, consuming more curcumin, eating more phytochemicals, even sauna itself. So sauna exposure helps increase FOXO3 expression. And again, calorie restriction, as I mentioned, fasting, things like that. So FOXO tends to be more activated with these interventions, which is what we want. So again, this is, these are some longevity genes. There's a lot more of them. But in the end, I think that the centenarian secret comes down to one word, which is resilience. They're able to resist and avoid cancer and cardiovascular disease, even when they have smoked for decades, even when they are having a lousy diet, they still maintain good metabolic health. They also resist cognitive and physical decline after their peers succumb to it earlier. So this kind of brings us to our next chapter, which is eat less, live longer, the science of hunger and health. So this is where he talks about his trip to Easter Island. So in the fall of 2016, Peter Atia met up with a few friends to travel to Easter Island, the island that we're most familiar with for the, having the giant stone heads, they call them the Moai, that line the shore. And this is why most people come to this island to, to, see, the, to see these stone heads. Now the island, Easter Island, was named by European explorers who landed there sometime back in 1700, like 1722, on Easter Sunday, and they called the natives Rap, but the natives called it Rapa Nui. Now Peter and his friends were not tourists; they were not there as tourists. They were there to make a pil pilgrimage to the source of one of the most intriguing molecules in all of medicine, in his opinion. And it's a molecule that a lot of people haven't even heard of. And the story of how this molecule was discovered and how it was, how it really revolutionized the study of longevity is one of the most incredible sagas in biology. Now, if you want a deeper dive into the history of, of course, we're going to talk about rapamycin. If you want a deeper dive into the history of rapamycin and, and mTOR, I recommend you listening to my history of rapamycin and, and and mTOR uh, podcast that I, I covered in, during um, when David Sabatini made an article. So I recommend you checking that out. So he himself goes into here and talks about Surin Seagal and, and finding the soil, um, bacteria in the soil and how like Seagal used this bacterium and grew it in the culture and he found that it had antimicrobial properties, it had anti-cancer properties. And of course, he named it rapamycin after Rapa Nui. So if you want to get more detail into that, I recommend you listening to my other podcast. Now, the, re the reason rapamycin has so many diverse applications is thanks to the property that Surin Seagal had observed, but never really explored, which, it, it, which is that it tends to slow down the process of cell growth and division. And of course, this is where we get the conversation of mTOR going. So for those of you not familiar, the job of mTOR is basically to balance an organism's need to grow and reproduce against the availability of nutrients. So when food is plentiful, mTOR is going to get activated and the cell is going to grow, producing new proteins, undergrow cell division, and, and has the ultimate goal of, of reproduction. And when nutrients are scarce, mTOR is suppressed and cells go into a recycling mode 
breaking down different cellular components, and generally cleaning house. So cell division and growth slow down or stop and reproduction is put on a hold to allow organisms to really conserve energy. And mTOR, it's such, it's such an important signaling pathway because it has a finger in every major process in the cell. And all the way back in 2009, there was an article in the New York Times that said, it, the, the title was Antibiotic Delayed Aging in Experiments with Mice. This wasn't even on the cover of New York Times. It was kind of buried all the way back in, in, in the later article. But the, some of the results were stunning from this, from this study. So even though the drug had been given later in life when the mice were already old, it had actually boosted their, these animals' remaining life expectancy by 28% for males and also 38% for females. And these studies were definitely reproduced. To scientists who study aging, the life ex expectant, extending effect of rapamycin was very exciting, but it also, it wasn't really exactly a surprise. So it appeared to represent the culmination of decades, if not centuries of observation that how we eat our food correlates sometimes how long we live. This idea, again, goes all the way back to Hippocrates, but more modern experiments have demonstrated over and over that reducing the food intake of lab animals could lengthen our lives. That's exactly the mechanisms by rapamycin and also and metformin. So this is kind of leading us to the calorie restriction talk. And again, the results have been remarkably consistent for centuries now. Studies dating back to the 1930s have found that limiting calorie intake can lengthen the lifespan of a mouse or rat by anywhere from 15 to 45%, depending on the age of onset and also the, the degree of restriction. Not only that, but the underfed animals also seem to be markedly healthier for their age, developing fewer spontaneous tumors than normal fed mice. So what I'm trying to say is, calorie restriction seems to improve both the health span and also the lifespan of these organisms. And the life ex extending effect of calorie restriction seems to be almost universal, meaning it doesn't matter what, whether we're talking about rats and mice, but also in yeast, worms, flies, fish, hamsters, dogs, and even weirdly spiders. It has been found to extend lifespan in just about every single model, model organism. Now, the real value of calorie restriction lies in the insights it has contributed to our understanding of the aging process itself. Calorie restriction studies have helped to uncover critical cellular mechanisms related to nutrients and longevity. Of course, I'm talking about AMPK, the AMPK signaling pathway, the one that allows us to make more mitochondria, the one that allows us to activate autophagy, increase fatty acid oxidation, the one that itself helps suppress mTOR. This is all through AMPK. So I talk about AMPK extensively. I'm just going to leave it at that and kind of move forward. But we know that different me different mechanisms of intervention like calorie restriction and medications like metformin can help activate this pathway. Uh, moving forward, kind of going back to rapamycin, this immune suppressing effect explains why there has been some uh, reluctance to consider rapamycin as a as a you know hesitant drug. There's there's so much reluctance to start this drug because it's this quote unquote immunosuppressant. 
But all of this kind of started to change in 2014 with a publication show, that showed that the rapamycin analog Everolimus actually enhanced the adaptive immune response to a vaccine in a group of older patients. So it wasn't necessarily a immunosuppressant, it was more of an immunomodulator. And this this was led by a scientist, um, Manick and Klickstein, who, who then worked at Novartis. And they gave these patients a moderate weekly dose of Everolimus, and it seemed to have a boosting when these patients were receiving the flu vaccine. It helped boost the response to these vaccines and also with fewer side effects. So again, it's not really an immunosuppressant, more of an immunomodulator. And again, there's so much work being done on rapamycin nowadays, especially by Matt Caberline, who's doing a large clinical trial of rapamycin on the dogs, on his pet dogs, you know, this dog aging project. And he found that rapamycin actually seemed to improve cardiac function in these dogs. It also reduced systemic inflammation perhaps by tampering down the activity of, you know, senescent cells. And it also seemed that um, Matt was finding in these dogs that it improved cancer surveillance and it actually improved periodontal health in these dogs. So again, this dog aging project, he's got like 600 dogs and it's a large clinical trial that should be ending in 2026. And he's giving these dogs weekly cyclical dosing schedules of rapamycin similar to a protocol that was done back in 2014 for this immune study. Now, the real obstacle here is a regulatory framework rooted in, again, Medicine 2.0, which does not yet recognize slowing aging and delaying aging as a legitimate endpoint. So again, back to Medicine 2.0, our current standard of care, we don't recognize the idea of slowing aging and also delaying diseases. Now, this would represent a 3.0 use for this drug. So being in medicine 3.0, we would actually look at using metformin empirically and using rapamycin empirically, where we would use these drugs to help people stay healthy rather than cure them from any specific ailments. Thus, it would face much more scrutiny and, of course, skepticism. But if we're talking about preventing the, the disease of aging, all those diseases of aging, cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes which kills 80% of us, then it's certainly worth having a serious conversation about what level of risk is and isn't acceptable in order to achieve that goal. And again, he talks about the TAME trial when it comes to metformin. Again, this study by Nir Barzilay, which should be out soon. It's a large analysis of patients on metformin and seeing how it delays all the types of age-related diseases. Again, if you want more information... I recommend you listening to my Age Later podcast. For the moment, though, let's think about the fact that all I've talked about in this chapter, or all he has talked about in this chapter, from mTOR to rapamycin to calorie restriction, it all points in one direction, that what we eat and how we metabolize it appears to play an outsized role in longevity. And in the coming chapters, we will take a much more detailed look at how metabolic disorders help to instigate and promote chronic diseases. So you can look forward to that. We'll be talking about the crisis of abundance and how our genes cope with our modern diet all in the next episode. So I hope you learned something. Hope you enjoy the podcast and I hope you tune in next time for another episode of Outlive by Dr. Peter Atiyah.